Well, welcome back to The Professor and The Hack for a brand new year, 2020. What uh, a summer it has been. This is episode 31. We've got a lot of somber stuff to talk about. Um, thanks for coming back and joining us. PVO, uh, The Professor, nice to see you. Good to be here with you, Hugh. It hasn't been the best start to the year from an Australian perspective, that's for sure, and it's not just the bushfires, although that's what it's all about, but politics has suddenly been immersed with the bushfires because of the debate raging about uh, state, federal responsibilities, the way it's been handled, and and we've barely started this. I I heard uh, just today, in fact, as we record this, it was one of the politicians, I think it was uh, that very ever-present state New South Wales Emergency Minister, David Elliott, uh, who said that this is the end of the beginning, nothing more than that. We'll get on to what a clown David Elliott is in just a moment. <laughs> I don't know if we've got enough time for that, Hugh. Uh, he is one of several political leaders in this country who was found wanting uh, with the hide not to stand down, it must be said, but uh, mm. that's a matter for him. Let's... Let's try and unpick this. One of the things which I've noticed over the years is that big disasters tend to bring out the best in nations and they tend to bring out the best in national leaders. People tend to rise to terrible occasions and uh, whether it was Howard at the time of Port Arthur, Howard at the time of the Bali bombings, George W. Bush in the early days after 9-11 when he was standing yep. in the still smoking ruins with his arm around the uh, the firemen there in New York City. Um, people who may not be grand in other circumstances find a grandeur in those moments. And what has been astonishing and tragic uh, is that the opposite seems to have happened here. Absolutely. Uh, Scott Morrison has been found really, really wanting on so many fronts, I think, since these bushfire tragedies have first started. I think he got off incredibly badly on the wrong foot, obviously, by being on that holiday in Hawaii. And that framed it difficultly for him and for people with whatever he was going to do next, if you like. It almost made him damned if he does or damned if he doesn't. On not not just being on holiday, but I think lying about being on holiday oh, is one of the most appalling aspects of that. His office, which remains unchanged and which Scott Morrison, when he came back, said that they would look at their processes, but I haven't, for the life of me, seen much change in the processes and certainly not in the personnel. Uh, they didn't think that anyone had a right to know where he was, indeed whether he was even overseas or not. So it was pretty gobsmacking, quite frankly. But that put him off on the wrong foot and his attitude about that was bad as well. But eventually when he came back, uh, the problem was not just contained to people having a bit of a laugh at him as well as shaking their heads at him over Hawaii and the timing of that holiday given where the bushfires were at and the lack of national leadership that was afforded. There was an attitude when he came back, which was, well, okay, I get that I shouldn't have done it, but this is a state issue. And there was a lack of empathy when he did start visiting bush-ravaged communities, and no doubt we'll talk about that. But he didn't look like somebody who had the empathy gene, I have to say. He didn't uh, seem to get that a national emergency is a national emergency, which requires national leadership, national presence. Uh, he seemed to be uh, almost like some sort of traffic conductor sitting uh, at a busy intersection, waving his arms around and saying, oh, it's those guys over there are, you know, are responsible. These guys over there are responsible. Don't get me, it's these guys over here are responsible. Down this there was no sense 
of, uh, you know, I don't want to bag, I don't want to make this bag out Scott Morrison for the purpose of bagging out Scott Morrison. Uh, to be prime minister under any conditions is a difficult job. Uh, to do it at a time when there's a lot of moving parts and dreadful things taking place is a particularly difficult job. But I have never seen in over 40 years as a reporter a prime minister's um, status and respect and credibility and authority leak away so mm. completely and so quickly as Morrison as he flailed about uh, on his return from Hawaii, you know, proceeding with fireworks shows with close friends at Kirribilli while people are dying in the fire fronts. It just seemed as if the guy, they talk about a tin ear, uh, he seemed utterly witless in the face of something in which people were losing their houses and dying. I, I, can you give us a, an historical uh, perspective or an example of anyone uh, else who's handled it worse? No. I, look, I mean, you, you're the one that's been the journalist a, a lot longer than I have, but as an observer of politics, you know, during at least some of that time as well, I, I, I can't think of an example where a leader has uh, performed as badly in the midst of a national crisis. And as you say, Hugh, this, this isn't about bagging Scott Morrison. And that's part of the problem when anyone who is in his inner sanctum hears our words, all they hear is, oh, here we go again, sections of the media or the commentariat bagging the Prime Minister. It's almost like it still hasn't gotten through the tin ears that exist. They think that this is about an attack on him. They don't understand that it's people making a very sad and disappointed reflection on him having fallen short of what you would expect of him. Now, the task for him going forward is to fix that. And I have to say, as critical as I've been and as critical as I know you've been as well, Hugh, of him and his performance, I want him to lift his performance both in this crisis and the next. Because Everyone needs is, him to lift his performance. He is our Prime Minister. That's right. He will be for years to come and, depending on the result of the next election, possibly many years to come. He will get the benefit of the doubt out of this, even if his polls do slightly slump, because he is there for a while to come. He is not going to suffer the fate that sections of the of his strong critics would hope that he's going to get removed or anything like that. That's absolute rubbish. So I want him to lift his game so that the reflection of him and others, including his supporters, is that, yes, this man was thrust into the job unexpectedly. Yes, this man won an election unexpectedly. Yes, he then failed in the role and duty of a national leader in a time of crisis. But guess what? When we reflect back on this in 6, 12, 18, 24 months or beyond, he has learned from that mistake and he's done it better the next time or times that have followed. And that would only be a good thing because it would set the kind of precedent we want for our national leadership. It's a character study, though, isn't it? I mean, uh, you know, I, I, there are so many echoes that you go back through our political history. You look at Mark Latham, for example, um, who essentially lost the 2004 election because his ridiculously overly macho handshake of mm. John Howard. Uh, it wasn't just the handshake, but the handshake somehow... It personified uh, it. Y yes. It, people suddenly saw a physical manifestation of the way in which they'd been starting to think about who Mark Latham was, and suddenly there was a kind of evidence of it. The, the, the character had been revealed in that moment. It's funny funny how important handshakes are because <laughs> the mismanagement of... of, of shaking hands, insisting on grabbing the woman's hand in Kabago who didn't want to shake his hand. Um, you know, these things, 
for the difficulty with Scott Morrison is that people have uh, realised that there's a character study that they've mm. seen happening in real time. And, uh, you know, someone that I know and respect his opinion, had been a senior advisor to prime ministers in the past, said to me, use that old line about the wet cement, uh, stick in wet cement, that um, people's perception of a political leader is a little bit like wet cement. They will shift their view according to what they've seen, but at a certain point the cement hardens and then it's rock yeah. hard for all time. And and the difficulty for him is that there is a vanishing, vanishingly small window available for Scott Morrison to reframe and make positive again um, an image of himself as a capable leader when that cement is starting to stiffen pretty quickly. Let, let me offer a counter view. Uh, this will almost scare the bejesus out of Team Morrison because it's me offering a prediction in his favour. Uh, and with my track record on this podcast, when it comes to predictions, they will be frightened beyond belief uh, that I'm saying that he will get a second chance uh, and in the worry that that won't now happen. But here's why I think as long as he plays his cards right from here, and that's a big if that he will get a second chance as opposed to someone like, for example, the, the, the Mark Latham example. He recently won an election and I think a lot of people want their decision to entrust him with three years in the face of what seemed like an almost inevitable defeat for the coalition after their leadership ructions and so forth. I think people want to be vindicated in that choice. I don't think people want to have that choice invalidated so quickly by such a bad performance by Scott Morrison. That doesn't mean that people are going to forgive him easily for it. It doesn't mean that they're going to forget. And it doesn't mean that he'll be able to get away with some of what I think he's gotten away with till now, which is having such a marketing and spin focused, not answering questions, being dismissive when he does get close to answering questions. I think all of that fades from view now and he has to step up and do the things that people expect of a leader. Show the empathy, empathy, answer the questions, be prime ministerial, not be an opposition leader who's a default prime minister because he won an unexpected victory. So, yes, all of that has changed, but I think the public want to give him a second chance, even if they're much more cynical about what he does next. So that becomes a case of saying, if I'm right, Scott Morrison... You are one of the luckier ones because this mistake has happened straight after an election where voters want you to reinforce that they didn't get it wrong. But I tell you what, mate, you've got to get it right from here or else they will quickly say, we all make mistakes, we did it the last election, let's get rid of this guy sooner rather than later. Look, I think that's absolutely the point. This, at the moment, this is not a, it's not a politically partisan issue. It's, you know, we could go through this whole thing and not mention the Labour Party and and we'd really not be lacking anything, we'd be missing mm. anything in having this, this conversation. And, and, of course, he is years away from an election. You're dead right. What I think of in this, I, I look back to the example of John Howard again. Um, Howard's uh, reputation as a great Australian Prime Minister does not rely rest on his last two terms. After he'd seen off Latham, he basically flailed around and didn't do a mm. great deal. Well, but work his, choices was the one thing he tried to do, and, of course, it was so unpopular. Calamitous uh, for him. The first two terms, though, were remarkable for the leadership that he showed. And if... If someone had said to John Howard, he'd just defeated in a landslide Paul Keating, he'd finally got his hand on the on the great prize that he'd been after for over a decade. And if someone had said, John Howard, I will make a prediction to you that over the next four years, you will uh, lead a military intervention into East Timor, 
which was a subject that wasn't even of interest to the mainstream of the Labour Party. Mm. It was on the far socialist left fringe of the Labour Party that anyone cared about East Timor. And you will also bring about firearms control in Australia. Um, in the wake of, you know, such a core constituency from your coalition partner yeah. being mm. so up in arms, in the midst of Hansenism, we can't forget as well. Yeah, so no one would have thought that would have happened. So the thing about Howard was is that he, in those Brilliant early years, and, we, and we've got to allow for the GST also as being part of that enormous mm, legacy. Of course. Um, because that took courage and it took all kinds of effort and energy to get to where it was, and he nearly didn't get it. So all that stuff as well. But he adjusted to circumstances with well-calibrated, difficult decisions that made Australia a better place. This is, you might call it the Howard test, and Howard didn't flunk that test. He passed that test and Australia was a better country for it. What, PVO, how would you define the test that now sits in front of Scott Morrison and can he not flunk it? Well, I, I think he can improve his game and, and rise. I just don't know whether he will. Uh, certainly he can in the sense that I think that he will get that benefit of the doubt if he performs appropriately, but he won't get the benefit of the doubt if he keeps trying to put spin and marketing first. I mean, the classic example of that, oh, my God, when they knew from their own research as well as their own intuition that they were struggling at the moment and then they put out that political advertisement on the very day that the fires were ravaging and, worse still, the Prime Minister then tried to defend it as not being a political advertisement when he had authorised it and it linked to the Liberal Party's Facebook page with a donate to the Liberal Party link atop of it. The idea that he not only had the stupidity to do that, but to then deny that it was what it was, literally trying to tell the Australian people that black is white, that attitude is what has to go, Hugh. He has to realise that being wrong is a condition we all suffer from. You know, Scott Morrison, if you're listening, we all make mistakes. You've enjoyed pointing out mine that you were going to win the next election, and you did. Guess what? Mistakes happen. It actually is a sign of strength to acknowledge mistakes and then learn from them. That was what made Howard what he was as a politician. His time in opposition in the wilderness years after he lost the leadership in 89, before he came back in 95, before his stunning run of victories from 96 onwards, what defined him as a political leader and the reason he was able to become a success in various ways, even some of his detractors begrudgingly acknowledging that, was because he learnt from his mistakes and he was willing to admit mistakes. Scott Morrison has got this functionary attitude, uh, which is that you never admit a mistake. And I actually think he really believes it at the moment. I don't think he believes that he made a big mistake. I think he thinks it is a beat-up the way that he's been treated. So, Hugh, you know, in a sentence to answer that question, the first thing to recover from this that Scott Morrison has to do politically is actually acknowledge that he made a mistake and believe it, not just say it, believe it and then learn from it. It's a character test, as we say. Let's take a quick break. We've got a lot more to talk about. Uh, back with you in just a moment. Hi there, I'm Sandra Sully. At 10 Daily, we pride ourselves on delivering great stories about the things that matter. From the biggest news of the day, right through to what's clicking, what's hot, what's happening now. We have it all covered. 10daily.com.au Welcome back to uh, episode 31 of uh, The Professor and the Hack. Uh, we're discussing, uh, of course, the uh, bushfires and the consequences to that. 
I'm intrigued. There's so much, when you look back, there's so much available material that has predicted so much of this calamity. One of the things being, of course, famously Scott Morrison wouldn't meet Greg Mullins and those other mm. former fire chiefs who, who came to him seeking meetings saying that there were these terrible warnings and Scott Morrison was saying, well, it's OK, I, I speak to thee or I can get the advice of the current uh, chiefs. And indeed he can get and did have the advice of the current chiefs and I have part of that advice right in front of me. In fact, you can go and if you're listening to this, you can go and look it up. You can Google a thing called uh, the... BNHCRC.com.au hazard notes. It's uh, just look up Australian seasonal bushfire outlook, August 2019. Australian seasonal bushfire outlook. This is the formal material that was handed to the government by the bushfire um, experts and the fire brigades, which included on the front page a map of Australia with marked out in red. Areas where they, they in, in sober language, call it above normal fire potential. And those red areas on those maps are precisely the bits that have burnt so calamitously mm. over the last little while. And the warnings that were there were so clearly there in black and white, which makes all these holidays they all took uh, such a remarkable failure. This is the part that really angers me the most. I mean, we can talk about him going to Hawaii, which was you know, the personification of that, the holidays. We can talk about the spin, the marketing, the adverts that were inappropriate, that were political and all the rest of it. But that's the superficial stuff that he did wrong. The deep-seated mistakes here that actually make me angry are, in no particular order, the unwillingness to listen to those ex-fire chiefs who predicted exactly what has happened and who had remedies and solutions had they been pursued to at least lighten the load of what has occurred to make it not as vicious and disastrous as it has been. The other mistake, of course, has been the long-term attitude around climate change and around the issues of how to respond, even just as a micro example, to one particular state, to the Royal Commission findings from the Black Saturday bushfires, which haven't been entirely enacted, going hand in glove with all of that, we had Bill Shorten on the election campaign in March before the campaign itself talking about one of his policies, which went largely unnoticed at the time, was to have the purchase of a whole bunch of water bombing planes that would be important from a national perspective for future fires. That never happened because he never got elected. And the government at the time attacked the idea as being unnecessary. We then also have on top of that a lack of, so therefore a lack of purchases and national capacity when it comes to firefighting. And apart from all of that, we've got that Ross Garner report from I think 2007 that actually predicted that stinging paragraph in it that says exactly these sort of fires will occur by 2020. So the, the, the conditions the will timing. be observable by 2020. Unbelievable. Uh, well, they're and observable. that's the stuff that makes me mad. Yeah. It's funny because also this same report that came out in August looking ahead to this fire zone on the issue of climate change, uh, it, this is sober language from serious people who are concerned about the country burning. I'm going to read it to you. The warming trend means that above average temperatures now tend to occur in most years and 2019 has followed this pattern. Across Australia, temperatures for January to July have been very much warmer than average. 
the second warmest for this period on record, 1.46 degrees above the 1961-90 average, with daytime temperatures the warmest on record. The summer of 2018-19 was exceptionally warm, 2.14 degrees above average, over 0.8 degrees greater than the previous warmest summer on record. These high temperatures added to the impact of reduced rainfall and increased evaporation further dry the landscape and the vegetation. There you go. In clear language to the Prime Minister and the leadership of this country with the people who are experts in bushfires saying the warming trend is making this more dangerous. And 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 the Deputy Prime Minister in November said raving lunatics were raising these points. And, And this is the problem, right? The argument from people who are cynical if not outright deniers of climate change and it occurring. And the Prime Minister's not one of them. He says it's occurring, but that's not the point. Oh No, he says we've always said it was occurring. Always. <laughs> well, well, and whether that's true or not, even if he has always said it, which I would perhaps take some issue with, at least with private comments versus public, his supporters haven't and still don't. We see that with Craig Kelly with that interview that he gave uh, with the UK with Piers Morgan uh, and the meteorologist who he attacked as nothing more than a weather girl. We've seen it with the Queensland Liberal Senator Jared Rennick who has accused just weeks ago the Bureau of Meteorology of, quote, rewriting weather records to Ah. fit in with the global warming agenda complaining that the public service is, quote, out of control. So the Bureau it's, of Meteorology <laughs> is part of a global... Why? NASA is part of the global conspiracy too, if apparently. The, the CSIRO, serious, you name it. If he wants credibility to say, yes, we've always made this connection, why has he never once shut down Michael McCormack with this absurdist notion that it's only inner-city woke greenies I'll who tell are you raising why. this issue? Or I'll... this clown... Ass hat from from Queensland <laughs> saying that the Bureau of Meteorology is part of some sort of global warming agenda. What are these guys doing? This is depressing, Hugh, but I will tell you why. Because when Malcolm Turnbull tried to take action on climate change through the National Energy Guarantee, it cost him his job. The National Party and the Liberal Party are somewhat delicately poised. He's not going to want to take on the National Party leader. And he has 77 seats, which is the bare minimum, if they want to have a majority and elevate one of their own to the speakership. Gutless. It is based John gutless Howard would have politics. done better. John Howard risked the coalition. Uh, he had the great benefit of having Tim Fisher. Uh, as the leader of the National Party, he saw the necessity of of that's of a big issue some, though. There, Hugh. that's change. a good, that's an important point um, because Tim Fisher, uh, as a collaborator with John Howard, gave them the leadership oomph that they needed. Uh, whereas Michael McCormick and Scott Morrison are not even a pale imitation of that on both fronts. Imagine how much harder it would have been for Howard; it would have been nigh impossible for him to go down the gun path reform if he hadn't had Tim Fisher. Well, I mean, but if you look at it, it's not Barnaby Joyce who's leading the National Party now. McCormack was brought in essentially mm. to be the sane, evidence-based leader of the National Party because All Barnaby Joyce had, had, had <laughs> floated out. And, and this is the thing which is where, again, you go back to Howard. Howard had the courage to face facts and adjust policy consequently. And, and the question is, does... Does Morrison have the courage? Does he have the character? Does he have the critical mass intellectually to face facts and adjust the nation's direction well, as a consequence? To- he, look, he's, he's a marketing guy. 
uh, and public relations is his thing. It always has been, and now that's something that has seen that hashtag on Twitter. Scotty from Marketing, the Batuta Advocate, of course, can take credit for starting to call him that, and I think that's sticking a little bit, but I think it's also quite true. So he will move more in that direction if marketing requires it, which it looks like it does. But can I can I make this point very quickly, Hugh? I, one of the things that frustrates me is there's this attitude that gets put by people that are very querying of climate change where they say, oh, you know, we don't make much of a difference. You can't tell me that doing more on climate change would have prevented these bushfires, yada, yada, yada. It's not that if we'd reduced our emissions by a little bit more, that would have prevented the bushfires. No, I accept that it wouldn't. The whole reason that you're trying to reduce emissions more and hope that the rest of the world does the same is for the longer-term way of trying to avoid what we've seen happen. But in the short term, what has happened has happened as ferociously as it has because if you have a greater belief and recognition in climate change, you then also take the next step, which is think to yourself, geez, hang on, if we've got a lot more heat out there and if the fire season's getting longer and the opportunity to backburn is shorter and so on and so forth, if you have that attitude that you recognise the effect of climate change and the risks that come with it, you plan and prepare and are ready and prevent in a way that we haven't done. You listen to the ex-fire chiefs, you get the water bombers, you fund the fire services that are there more because you say to yourself, wow, climate change is real, it's having an impact and it's about to strike come the next summer, so let's be ready for it. And the other That's thing is, the point. is and the other thing is surely is that you change who you are in the world. And we, you know, I've spoken admiringly of Howard, but let's take a moment to look at something which is now largely forgotten from the Hawke years. And that was that in the 1980s, Hawke recognised that our farm products were being blocked for export by all kinds of tariff barriers that were out because our farmers were efficient. We could produce things in large bulk at reasonably low cost, and therefore, we, but we're being blocked by other you know, protective mm. tariffs all around the world. And so he set out, bear in mind, I don't think Labor got a single vote from the, from the country regions for any of this, but he set out, he didn't have the United States on side, didn't have the UK, didn't have Europe, didn't have mm. China, didn't have Japan. He set up this thing with his cabinet called the Cairns Group, which included Chile, Costa Rica, a whole bunch of non-entities. But the Cairns Group became the thing that went out and relentlessly, month after month, year after year, made the case for lowering agricultural tariff barriers to freeing up trade so that food generally in the world would be easier and more accessible, it would be better for everyone, it'd be better for Australia. And they won over time, not completely, they made and carried that argument and won people over. So you don't do anything by yourself in the world. It is surely past time for us to stop being basically coal salesmen, using accounting tricks with Kyoto carry forwards and all this sort of stuff on emissions and so on, and actually get real with this so that we're in a position to make a proper argument about um about the very fundamental driving force behind these bushfires and other calamitous events, and that is that the globe is warming. Absolutely, Hugh, and we'll 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 see how it changes um, within the government. Because I have to say, the Liberal MPs that I've spoken to so far um, in the wake of the bushfire crisis 
Most of them are very critical of Scott Morrison's performance. That is true. Some of them are acknowledging that, you know, the, the ups and downs of where people sit on the issue of climate change has gone in the opposite direction to what it did during some of the Abbott-Gillard period uh, where there was cynicism about things like a carbon tax. But at their core, uh, there's still a very large number of Liberal MPs who just don't believe it. It's as simple as that. They don't believe it. Craig Kelly is not an island in his views. What he's criticised for by some of these MPs is for actually the timing of his airing of those views. Now, that's a little bit uh, concerning, I think, because all they're worried about there is the fact that he's prepared to say what they think as well, um, because it's not politically correct to say at the moment. That suggests to me that Scott Morrison isn't likely to jump in too many directions at the moment on climate change, despite where the world's at. It's interesting because, you know, obviously the the, the major uh, initiative that we've seen from the Prime Minister, one of one is getting the, the Navy and the Air Force and, and, and the Army Reservists out to help. Uh, the other one is this $2 billion that's been tipped into the pot for this uh, new bushfire recovery agency. But again, mm. I'm reminded of a Productivity Commission report just from 2015 in which it found that, quote, governments over-invest in post-disaster reconstruction and under-invest in mitigation activities that would limit the impact of natural disasters. The Productivity Commission, again, sober people, uh, you know, who, who, who are serious about these things, they're laying out there the over-investment in the recovery phase after a disaster, the absolute underinvestment, not just, I would say, financially, but also in terms of political underinvestment in things that might stop these things happening again. Yeah, and, and uh, there's no time like the present is there for for that discussion to be had uh, because <laughs> these fires have been so broad brush in, in, in who they've affected and the states that they've touched. I mean, they're at their worst in New South Wales and to a lesser extent but still significantly in Victoria. But there are fires in South Australia, Kangaroo Island, Western Australia and certainly uh, up in Queensland as well. So uh, there, there now is the opportunity, I think, with the level of national consciousness about it uh, to look to do something. One thing that I really don't like uh, at the moment is people that argue, well, we're in the midst of the crisis, so now is not the time to start talking about the why and the who and the when with, with blame. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. Now is when people are focused on this. Now is the time to also have that conversation. We don't suddenly absolve the very people who are meant to be managing this of blame for mismanagement simply because they are now trying to manage their way out of their mismanagement. Uh, that frustrates me enormously because when the dogs bark and the caravan does move on, uh, as it inevitably does with new issues and new debates, the reason that we still talk about it and about fixing it for next time is because we are already starting that conversation now. Otherwise, it just goes and fades into the background. Well, now is certainly the time to uh, give some credit where it's due. And uh, most obviously, we the credit to the volunteers, um, the tragic scenes of the funerals, the kids who've lost parents, mm. uh, you know, the leadership from from guys like uh, Crispin Fitzsimmons in, in Victoria and, and New South Wales. Gladys Berejiklian, although it seems she has no authority in her own cabinet, otherwise why she would tolerate David Elliott staying as oh, the emergency God, services minister when he took off despite all the warnings to take his holiday. What an absolute... Can, can I say this, Hugh? He not only as emergency services minister went on a European holiday when there was a state of emergency in New South Wales. That of itself should result in him being sacked as far as I'm concerned. But how's this for a level of stupidity off the charts? 
he did it after Scott Morrison had got back from Hawaii and was getting torn from pillar to post and tarred and feathered for his mistake. And right in the middle of that process being what the Prime Minister was going through, the idiocy of the New South Wales Emergency Services Minister to actually think, you know what, I reckon I can slide off to Europe now on a family holiday, visit Paris, visit London, spend New Year's Eve uh, up there in cosmopolitan Europe. What a moron. Well, I, I mean, mean I, I just, yeah. I'm, I'm blown away by the dumbness of it. Well, more I mean, than anything. if you want the job, if you don't want the job, that's fine, go away. If you do want the job, turn up to work. And the damage of that is not only is this fool Elliot shown himself to be just. Well, he abandoned his post at a time of crisis when he was the emergency services minister. What else needs to be said? But he's also clearly damaged the credibility and authority of Gladys Berejiklian because any premier who's who has authority, would take him in and say, mate, what were you thinking? Get out of town. Get out of this desk. Uh, I don't want to see you again. You're finished. And she doesn't seem able able to do that. Um, but how, how does he even go? That's the part. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, you know, it's, it's outrageous that an emergency services minister leaves in the midst of a state emergency that's been declared. But the, the stupidity, the prime minister was literally still on the rack for his decision to go to Hawaii as this guy was boarding his plane to Europe. I mean, well, well this is the, uh, this that, is the guy who's defended my mind. This is the guy who defends the strip searching of uh, of children uh, in pursuit of drugs. Unlawfully, or it, or, it turns or, out. <laughs> Or uh, chased but, a pea plater uh, who he think brushed his car and and then had the temerity to say, well, the pea plater alleges, the minister denies it because he's also a police minister. They, they used, the pea yeah, plater alleged that he said that he works for the cops. But the minister actually acknowledged uh, that he said words to the effect of, uh, I don't get a badge, I just pay for them. I mean, what an idiot. <laughs> yeah, they used to say of the Australian cricket team that it was uh, much harder <laughs> to get into it than it was to get sacked from it. Uh, and, uh, you know, lots of people held on there when their batting averages were going down and down. You do look sometimes at a guy like that and thinking, how, what do you have to do these as, days to be actually hard, flung? Um, as, hard, as hard as we have been on David Elliott, Hugh, let me assure you of one thing. He won't be listening to this podcast. You know why? Why is because that? Because judging by the stupidity of his decision to go to Europe, I'm not sure he has the intellectual wherewithal to work out how to actually turn the podcast on and listen to it. I mean, I, I, there's no fear of him doing that. The guy, the guy, I, I don't we'll even know where to round. start with this bloke. We'll deliver a copy round. Look, we're out of time. <laughs> I, I do want to leave on the tone of, uh, of the deepest respect for the people who, who, who turned up, who did turn up. Uh, again and again in these fire zones. And so also, many volunteers. And you know, so like many not... people in communities who've rallied around each other at a time of awful, awful loss. And uh, our thoughts are with them. Absolutely. PVO, good to talk to you. I'll talk again soon. Talk soon. been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.